you know, we need Canadians also to advocate for children's rights. We need Canadians to, you know, and, and anybody who's watching this to get out there and pressure their governments, pressure decision makers in their communities to take these issues seriously, to, to put children's rights front and center. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation. If you've listened before, welcome back. If you're new, thanks for tuning in. My name is Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast that celebrates the impactful work of thought leaders around the world, shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it, and teases out how we can all lead more impactful lives. Today's guest is Danny Glenwright, an incredibly inspiring individual who has dedicated his life to impactful and justice-driven causes. His prolific work in human rights journalism has taken him to over 70 countries, and he now serves as president and CEO of Save the Children Canada, where he's spearheading a multitude of projects, all seeking to provide access to essential food, clean water, healthcare, and medical treatment to children around the world. I was so excited about this conversation and couldn't wait to learn from Danny about his journey from human rights journalism to leading Save the Children Canada, the current state of child rights in the 21st century, and how we can all work to hold our governments more accountable. But before we dive into the episode, I'd like to tell you about an organization behind the creation of this podcast. Simbi Foundation is a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide essential technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you like the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thanks again for listening. So I've got to tell you, I've been a big fan of yours for quite a while. There have been a few people in my network that have mentioned you and, and your work. And uh, I think I watched my first YouTube clip of you probably about five years ago. And okay. that, that, was, that was the first time that, that, that your work kind of came into my sphere. And okay. yeah, I've been a big fan ever since. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and thanks for this opportunity. Truly a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And where are you joining from? I'm joining today from Toronto, which I should say is the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And of course, today is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. And uh, I like to follow up a land acknowledgement just by saying, you know, I think it's great that we do them, but uh, I think there's so much more we can do in the spirit of reconciliation. So I know we'll talk a bit more about our work at Save the Children today, but just to say that um, Indigenous child rights is one of our four key pillars of our work and, and, and supporting reconciliation is central to everything we do. Um, so the land acknowledgement is important, but um, there's much more than, um, than acknowledging the land we're on, I think. You know what, let's start right there. Um, sure. what, what are Save the Children Canada doing at, at the moment to, to support Indigenous youth in Canada? Sure. Well, I mean, I should acknowledge off the start that um, here in Canada, as it will be obvious to most Canadians, the name Save the Children is problematic, uh, given the history of, um, of how this country has responded and, and treated Indigenous people and children. Um, so we work in Canada under the title of the National Reconciliation Program. And it's uh, one of our uh, one of the areas of work that we're very proud of, because I think in many ways, the work that we do with Indigenous communities is 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 where we're heading, uh, where we're wanting to head, where we think we need to head in our international work, which is thinking of us much more as a partner, as a facilitator, as a convener, as an opener of doors, acknowledging the power that we hold as an international non-government organization with all the you know, footprint that we have globally, with all the relationships we have here in Canada. And rather than, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the old approach uh, that our sector has taken, which would be to, you know, sort of use a, you know, a similar approach in communities in Canada to that that we would employ internationally. We work with Indigenous communities and we say, what do you need? How can we help? Um, and it's not a transactional relationship. So we build partnerships based on shared values and shared principles. And those partnerships sometimes don't even involve collaboration on what we would term sort of project-based work for many months or many years. It's about 
we'd like to work with you in some way and we'll figure out what that way is. But first, let's get to know each other. First, let's become friends and build trust. And maybe there will be a financial opportunity from a donor in future. Maybe there will be some need that your community has that we can support with. Likewise, maybe there'll be some learning that we can do from working with you. Um, but the primary motivation is not, oh, we've got a grant opportunity. Would you like to be our partner? It's we see you as a, a, an organization, a, a, an Indigenous group, a, a group of people that we'd like to work with and uh, based on much more than that. So, you know, it's it's in some ways it's very counter to how we work because we were always working under the gun in the sector. We're always on timelines. There's always too much work and too little time. Um, and partnerships like that involve, it's a resource intensive process. Um, it, it's, it's time um, and, and patience. But I would argue after seeing it in action that those partnerships are much more sustainable. They're much more important and powerful and they're filled with trust and they last longer um, when they're beyond the, a project cycle. Um, and so I think it's an investment that we really feel is important. And I think it's the only way organizations like ours should be working with indigenous communities in Canada. Um, and it's, it's about that power shift, which is so critical and acknowledging the power that we have and, you know, acknowledging the sort of negative history. Um, you know, in many cases, um, we say the children have been, been operating in Canada for almost hundred years, as long as we've been around. Um, and over the past few years, as we've, you know, these graves have been uncovered in uh, residential school grounds across the country. And I don't like calling them schools because clearly they were not what we'd like to think of as schools, but we had a bit of a moment at Save the Children and we said, you know, uh, what was our history? I mean, how were we involved or not involved in that? And if children's rights are central to what we do, why weren't we, <laughs> you know, saying something at that time um, if this was happening? And uh, it's it's a long time ago and we haven't necessarily been so good at preserving all the history of what we've done in Canada all these years, but we're trying to be very transparent about the fact that uh, we're coming to some of these conversations late. Um, and we're trying to support now in more positive ways, acknowledging that painful history and, and our potential role in it, which may have also just been not doing anything, ignoring it or not even being aware of it. So it's, it's, it's complicated and complex, like so much of the work we do, Erin. Um, but I think I, we're, we're so proud of our work in, here in Canada under our National Reconciliation Program. Um, because the other thing we've been able to do is bring on a lot of corporate supporters and bring them on this journey that we're on, corporate and foundation partners, and, you know, ed educate them in, in this learning and unlearning that we're doing um, and share that beyond our organization. So it's it's been powerful for just as a learning tool, if nothing else. You, you mentioned something which resonated and you said, you know, you're 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 just you're speaking to communities you're you're learning from them you want to understand if you can support how you can support and quite often i think charities really mismanage engagement with partner communities or other communities but I, I, the the first question that i'd like to understand is when you are speaking to these communities in canada what what sort of things are you hearing it, it differs. I mean, first of all, let me say, you know, you use the word charity, and that's something that we we talk about. I, I think I, I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's from um, Chief Murray Sinclair, who talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and said, you know, as long as one side sees it as an act of benevolence, and the other side sees it as just claiming their human rights, it, you know, it's, it's not going to work. Um, and I think organizations like Save the Children have to stop seeing themselves as an, an aid organization and a charity organization. What we really need to, you know, shift the flip the script and say, I mean, we've got all the power and all the resources in this rich G7 country, and there's a reason for that. It's a structural, system, systemic reason. It's the legacy of colonialism, um, and it, we need to acknowledge that and, and acknowledge that it's, you know, th there's lots of different forces at play that don't want to give up that power. Um, and so it's, you know, supporting um, whether it's Indigenous communities here in Canada or those communities we work with all over the world, it shouldn't be seen as an act of charity. It's it's an act of, it's, it's solidarity. And we need to work in solidarity with these, with these people um, because it's, um, you know, we have a lot of privilege and uh, we've got a lot of power and that's not always been uh, allocated fairly. In most cases, it hasn't been. Something that I'm truly inspired by with you and your career is 
just every direction and every country that it's taken you to. And for our listeners, I, 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 and for myself, I'd love to understand how you go from, you know, a bachelor at, at Ryerson in journalism to leading one of the most impactful organizations supporting kids in, in Canada. And yeah, I just love to understand some of the kind of memorable components of that journey. Sure. Well, I, I mean, one, I think there's a healthy dose of luck in there. I think in so many ways, I've been very privileged and, um, and very lucky in my career. Uh, part of that, I think, is, is acknowledging that and, and just saying yes to every opportunity that came to me because I, you know, I come from a working class background in Winnipeg, a, a mom who was, you know, struggling to raise four kids working two jobs, you know, my family didn't have experiences of seeing the world. Um, and, and I think that, you know, seeing my mom in that sort of single mom role for much of my life and probably my own experience of growing up gay and, and my struggle with, my, you know, acknowledging my sexuality in those early years is what sort of, I think has sparked my, you know, my uh, passion for social change and my passion for social issues and uh, my my frustration with the inequality in the world that we live in and the racism in the world that we live in. Um, and that, you know, I, I've always been a, a bit of an extrovert, a bit of a storyteller, is somebody who loves, a, you know, a good debate. And I, I guess that's what drove me to go to Ryerson, as it was called then, Toronto Metropolitan University, as it's now called, um, to study journalism. But I went there with the knowing that what I wanted to do was work in the world. I'd never been out in the world. I'd never left, you know, North America, but it was a passion. And a part of it was also growing up a reader. I mean, you can see behind me, I've been an avid, passionate love, lover of books uh, from grade two. And I guess a bit of a geek too. I was thinking, you know, just this past weekend about like 10 years old in 1990, I, I unearthed recently like a folder of clippings that I'd clipped from the Manitoba election, you know, and I had files on the NDP and the, and the liberals and the conservatives like this is this is what I did at 10 years old you know in 1990 there were no smartphones so maybe that's not so crazy but I don't know where it came from just a real passion for politics and especially um, working internationally and so that's what drove me to, to Ryerson in those years but I knew that when I graduated I wanted to use that degree to get out in the world and my initial idea was to be an international foreign correspondent for I, I was a print journalist and so my first international role was working for an organization called journalists for human rights which is a canadian media development organization and working in print media but also working in namibia where i started and then i moved to work in sierra leone training journalists in those countries who had never had a formal education in media on trying to get more stories into the media in those african countries around social issues um, it was amazing uh, that you know it was it was a it was work that had impact and we could trace the impact from a story that we produced to a change that you know that was driven by the government or driven by some agency that we reported on, um, and so I was inspired in those years by the power of storytelling, and a lot of what we reported on in, in that year that I worked in Sierra Leone. So I'm talking about 2007 to 2008. It was just after the war ended. We were there working uh, on a UN contract to support reporters reporting on an election for the first time. It was the first sort of election that country had had since the 10 year civil war. And it was a peaceful transfer of power, which is a huge success, but we got funds to go travel the country with reporters who've basically been sheltering in a newsroom in Freetown for 10 years, trying to stay alive. Uh, and I got to see, I got to see that country with Sierra Leoneans who were seeing their country for the first time at peace uh, and reported on it, you know, everything from visiting communities that were growing all kinds of fruit and veg, but it was rotting because they didn't have roads to get it to Freetown, which was having food shortages and being able to get push the government to build roads to some of these communities. Now there's roads to certain communities that I initially reported on. So my point is, is I, you know, a lot of the work I did in, in those years was also reporting on the good work of organizations like Save the Children. Uh, as well as you know, some of the areas for improvement of some of the some of the international organizations in a post-conflict setting, and I also realized you know the print media you know the the aspiration I had to work internationally in print media was 
going to be challenging because print media in, in North America has really been dying a slow death, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I still subscribe to the newspapers, but I think I'm probably the only person I know who does, uh, certainly at my age. Um, so I thought, you better have a plan B, Danny. You know, So it was after I worked in Sierra Leone, I got a job working with the UN on a human rights campaign in uh, the West Bank and the Palestinian territories. And I went and moved there for two years. And I started a master's degree in that time in international development and sort of got the credentials I needed to work in international development. I'd been doing media development, but only with my background as a journalist. And, uh, you, you know, as you say, I kept, but I kept getting jobs in media. So after that, um, actually, there was in those years that I met my husband and we, we, you know, fell in love and got engaged. We hadn't even been together a year. And two days after we got engaged, I said, just got a job offer to go and work in South Africa. Are you serious about this? Because I'm, you know, I'm, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm moving around the world. And he, bless him, was, you know, he um, is originally from Ghana and had been in, in South Africa before and was happy to relocate there. So, but it was another job in media, but it was similar in, in that it was telling stories for impact. It was a gender organization focused on, um, women realizing, women and girls realizing their rights in some of the countries in Southern Africa. So my role was as an editor to try to get more news stories into the media in 14 countries of Southern Africa on women's rights and gender issues. So I think the through line, Aaron, uh, long story short, is that, you know, and everything I've done is involved telling stories. And even as a, a CEO of Save the Children, I very much see my role as an advocate doing things like I'm doing today with you getting out there and telling the stories of the good work we're doing, being transparent about some of the challenges our sector is facing and trying to change that. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, trying to build a bit of a movement to support this work um, because we right now have more needs than ever globally and less funds than ever to meet them. And we need to start to find new ways to do this work and build new coalitions. And I see my role as, a, as somebody who can help make that happen with the power that I have in this role and my ability to tell stories and communicate. So the communications piece, the building mm -hmm. of coalition piece is a big sort of through line in everything I've done. Um, as and, well and so as, yeah, the, a, lot of, a lot of luck, as I said. So, so the, the notion of, uh, of storytelling, I actually wanna get into. I, I too am deeply passionate about books and my passion comes from the fact that I struggled to read as a student with dyslexia growing up and, you know, some subsequently overread to overcorrect and have loved it deeply ever since. Um, but as two people who also work in the nonprofit sector, um, it, it's interesting to think about how quick fast paced media changes and how little people can actually know about the problem that you're trying to tackle and how quickly they can actually switch gears away from that problem or away from that 24-hour news cycle to another one. And I'm curious, how do you, as the leader who's passionate about reading, also someone who's focused on storytelling um, and now someone who needs to ensure that Save the Children continue to, to flourish and, and tell the right stories, how do you think about an, uh, I guess humans change away from print media to Instagram news, and 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 how does that affect your work? It affects our work in so many ways. I mean, think about the misinformation out there right now. I I think even as much or more so than reading, the importance of teaching critical thought is something that we really need to hold on to. And I think whether that's at university level or at secondary level, I think, you know, the, the need for us to be, be teaching kids today, you know, that critical thinking so that we can wade through all the various, as you say, the various things that are being, you know, that we're being inundated with all the time is so important. And whether you read books or you read magazines or you read Instagram, having that sort of lens to, to say, you know, this is BS or I don't trust this, let me do a bit more research is so important um, because I, there's lots of people I really value in my life, including my husband who I love dearly, who doesn't read books the way I do, but he reads other media and he's, in, you know, he's listening to books. And, you know, I think all of that is important as long as we're, you know, taking in information, but being able to sort of decipher what's real and what's not, or what leaves you thinking I need to learn more is what's so important right now. And we're seeing 
decision makers actively lying to us right now and trying to sow misinformation. And that's terrifying to me. And only by learning and reading and, and, and being critical thinkers will we overcome that, I think. And it's, uh, it's a real challenge. Um, so yeah, I'm not, uh, somebody puts my nose in the air and says, you have to read books. Um, I, I read books and I support all my local bookstores because I love them. But I just think, I think more importantly is the ability to approach everything we're reading or the information we're getting with some critical thinking. Couldn't agree with you more. And so when, when you think about, you know, over the last 16 years, when you think about how you have communicated the organizations that you've worked with and served, how has our transition to, you know, Instagram and social media, how has that changed Save the Children, for example, strategy to communicate the work that you're doing? I think it's largely a really positive thing. You know, I think social media opens up the ability to speak to people who we wouldn't speak to otherwise. I think it opens up the work we do and our ability to share it with communities all over the world, you know, that we're not actually there on the ground. So I think for the most part, it's a very positive thing. I think how we use that and, and, and the messages that we're tailoring is where we've changed. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I've been a big advocate for, you know, if I've, I've been on a journey, actually. When I first got to work in the sector, I learned that, it, you know, you could raise the most money for the important work we did by showing the most awful things about the places we worked in, right? The flies in the eyes. And even though that bothered me a lot as somebody who'd been to those places and knew that wasn't the reality for everyone and wanted to approach people with dignity, I was also told, this is the only way you're gonna fundraise to do this work. And I've worked and I've had, most people who work at NGOs struggle in, in organizations that don't have enough funds and have so many needs. And so it's been this constant battle. I've really, and I used to argue, you know, for, as a journalist too, for sharing that reality. I've been on a journey and I've, you know, that's what's changed at least for me. And I think for Save the Children is we've, we've really moved now to, to strength-based messaging and approaching everyone we work with with dignity that they deserve and asking the question saying, okay, the common knowledge says this, the only way to raise the most funds is to show the most awful, scandalous, tragic things. But have we ever tried to do anything else, right? And maybe by doing that, we're we're soliciting funds from a certain type of donor, but if we actually go with strength-based messaging, and if we actually approach all the communities with which we work with utmost dignity and respect and that sort of shared values approach that I've talked about, we'll probably attract a new type of donor that hasn't been interested in us before because of how we presented our work. So to me, that's the interesting journey we've been on, Aaron. I mean, and that's been apparent on social media since it's existed. And I'm so proud. I mean, I've been involved in a number of processes that save the children, including the Pledge for Change, um, which we recently announced, which maybe we can talk about if there's time, but which a large part of that, which is it's, it's, it's pushing this idea of equitable partnerships with, you know, INGOs like Save the Children and all the communities where we work. But an element of it that's new is this, uh, what we talked about as authentic storytelling, which is everything I've just said. And that's the change in social media because People don't want to go on social media and feel demeaned and feel misunderstood and feel talked down to. They want to go on social media and engage equally and equitably. And it's not just social media. Of course, it's in our newsletters and in our photos and in our approach and all that we share. So to me, that's the most important and compelling change. And I think social media remains a really positive tool to be sharing that kind of, that kind of work. Danny, I love everything that you're saying and could not agree with you more. I, I mean, uh, a few thoughts jump to mind. The, the first is, so I'll age myself. When I was growing up, the, the dominant messaging that I, that I remember on TV was Christian Children's Fund flies in the face. Yep. And you know, I, I remember when, when we first started doing installations in, in the Bitty Bitty Refugee Settlement, um, thinking to myself, a lot of the people that I'm connecting with are traveling eight kilometers to school. They have more passion for life, more hope, um, are, are more excited about the future than many of the people who I know in Vancouver or Toronto. And so 
taking a picture of them with flies on their face to fundraise is the most inauthentic thing you could possibly do. In addition to that, what I find quite beautiful about social media is many of the schools that we work with, and I'm sure it's similar for you, I become Facebook friends with the headmasters. And I can't imagine posting a picture demeaning these people who I'm actually quite close with in order to fundraise when it's not even the most compelling story. The, the story of overcoming adversity, of deep passion, of studying and achieving an education beyond the odds, I think is so much more compelling. And, and to your point about uh, connecting with the right donor audience, um, an audience that actually cares, that will probably hold you more accountable, that wants a higher level of transparency. Um, yes, everything you just said, I'm with you uh, 100%. As I say, building coalitions, bring, you know, bring them on. Yes, I, I hope that we can continue to share these messages because it's important. So you, you did speak to the Pledge for Change, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. So I'm an economist by trade. And the question that has always bothered me is why does aid fail so significantly? We're so good at deploying capital, and we are so awful at deploying capital in a sustainable way. And I, I, I think that my hypothesis is quite closely aligned to what this Pledge for Change is really about. And I, I'd love to hear more about uh, what you guys are doing. So I, just to say, I could talk about Pledge for Change for an entire hour, Aaron. We're so going to have to have another episode on that. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's such an interesting topic. And I think that you could argue, you could argue on one side of the debate that aid has failed. You could argue on the other that aid has been really successful. And I think that both are right. I think that anybody who works in this sector has these internal struggles with so much of what we do because of, of things I said earlier around this idea of it being seen as charity, this idea of, you know, coming to support people who, as you just said, are perfectly capable and able to support themselves and, and just lack the, you know, the, the, the funds and, and the power to do it. Um, so the Pledge for Change process was led by Degan Ali, who is a visionary uh, who leads ADESO, an organization out of East Africa, a, a, a local organization there. And she's been, you know, pushing this uh, localization agenda forward for a long time. And when I say localization, I talk about this idea of shifting power uh, from, you know, organizations like uh, Save the Children, but also from governments and, and other big players in, in international development and humanitarian space to try to get more uh, local agencies where there are many thriving, intelligent, you know, well set up local agencies who have the capacity to be responding and they just don't have the access to the funds. Um, and so the localization agenda was very much around, you know, allocating a certain percentage of funds to local actors. Well, she thought, uh, when she brought together the Pledge for Change group of CEOs, and I was among a group of CEOs of international NGOs like Save the Children, the idea was to you know, have some tough discussions and come up with ways that we could really pursue that localization agenda more meaningfully. And that, you know, we talk about that as equitable partnerships. And that in involves both, you know, sharing some of our work, in, you know, and, and, and allocating our funds to the local actors we work with, being much more aware of the local actors rather than being the direct implementer, as well as this piece on authentic storytelling, and as well as sort of the, the story I told earlier about the work we do in Canada, this idea of just being a facilitator. So, you know, rather than uh, going after all the funds and all the opportunities saying, you know, here's an opportunity that actually this local actor is much better equipped to take on than, than we are. And so here's the funding directly to them. So it's been a long process. We thought it was going to be quick and, and easy. You know, let's meet. Uh, we met for three hours once a month over a couple of months, and we ended up meeting for three hours once a month for two years because the challenge is the complexity of each of our organizations. I mean, Save the Children works in 120 countries. It has 30 members. Each of those members, like Canada, has a different business model, a different way of working. And then you add on Christian Aid and Oxfam and Plan and all the, you know, all the other actors that, that participated. And we had a lot of difficult conversations. And I think, Aaron, that's the value in some of this, right? Is actually go, going out there and, and being vulnerable and having emotional conversations and acknowledging the white supremacy, the colonialism, the patriarchal nature of the history of our organizations. 
and the world in which we work and our place in that. Uh, and that's not a project term. You know, this is a conversation that has to happen for a long time and that has to be happening below our level as well as above our level and with the donors. And so it, what's, what it has produced is what we're calling the Pledge for Change, which sets a number of goals that will have targets attached to them between now and 2030 that will see INGOs like Save the Children creating much more equitable partnerships in all the places we work, acknowledging the complexity of, you know, even within countries, there are some areas that have strong local actors in some areas where we'll continue to work because our technical expertise or our footprint there is needed. A, a commitment to authentic storytelling and a commitment to be out proselytizing, like I said, or building coalitions, right? Getting more actors involved in this discussion. So there's a Pledge for Change 2030 website check it out because it's got much more detail than I've shared here, but it's been really a privilege to be part of that conversation. I was the only Canadian CEO in the group. So I learned a lot about, you know, what's happening in other parts of the world from Australia to the UK. Um, I learned so much from uh, many of the CEOs of local agencies that participated in that conversation and, and from Dagan and her team at Adesso. And um, I'd rather be in that conversation, having those difficult conversations, then catching up. Um, and I think that my team at Save the Children in Canada wants to be leading on a lot of this change as well. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a, a tendency in the sector to competing priorities that we sign onto these pledges and they become sort of window dressing that we advertise on our website, but we don't really meaningfully do anything. And our strategic plan at Save the Children in Canada for the next six years is around complete transformation of our work is a, is a business model shift away from being a direct implementer to being a mobilizer of influence and, and, and an advocator for children's rights. And it's not about growth for the sake of, of growth, but it's about growing our private funds so that we can be a more independent vocal champion with children for child rights. And that's uh, children's rights, excuse me. And that's here in Canada and globally. Sorry, I'm very passionate about that. So I, I, I probably spoke too long there, but you do not need to apologize for that. It gives me a lot of hope to hear organizations of your size and scale thinking so uh, passionately and deliberately about, about this, because we, we are seeing a paradigm shift uh, in, in, in the charitable space. And just hearing you speaking so openly and vulnerably about uh, you know that, that we haven't always operated optimally and that there is room for for improvement and what a, what a great way to to move forward I, I love that you, you know you, you think about a lot of organizations that have been successful and one of the things that is often true is is a deep focus and something that I actually found really refreshing was, you know, recognizing in, in, in reading Save the Children Canada's website, yes, no doubt there's a focus on, on children, um, but there's also a, a layered approach in, into where that focus is delivered. And, and I'm wondering, how did you guys arrive at this, this approach that includes quite a few areas within supporting uh, children? And, and how do you think about your, your work in supporting children? Yeah, I think the nice thing about being a, a member of this global federation, which is Save the Children, is that we can increase our impact because we share a strategic plan. So all members of Save the Children International and, and Assembly share a strategic plan, which we commit to ensuring that all children have the ability to thrive, to survive, to be protected, to learn. Um, and those are pillars of the work that we do together. And it that allows a bit of flexibility so that each of us can have sort of, as you say, an area that we really lean into. Uh, I think for us in Canada, it's, it's, you know, it's really around the equality and equity, equity pieces. You know, it's a, we're, we're out there, you know, on the front line saying in order to do our work better, we need to actually look at the root causes of the work that impact everything we do. And, and you know, we, we're good at sort of looking, thinking that way, you know, in a small community in Zimbabwe, we say, what are the root causes of food insecurity here? Well, let's address those. Well, I'm saying, let's look at the root causes of all the inequality in the world, right? And that's racism and sexism and discrimination and, and oppression. And we're, we're really centering that in our work at Save the Children Canada. And so the, the, the way we approach that is to look at that in all that we do. Is it much harder? Yes, 
It, does it mean sometimes we need to pull back and slow down? Absolutely. But I think, and I think most of my team would agree, that means that when we do have partnerships, when we are you know, intervening, the work we're doing is more sustainable. It's, 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 it's um, in partnership and it's um, building resilience so that we don't have to be back in those communities again, doing similar work. Um, and all of that links to children's rights. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I was looking at a stat in, in preparation of having this conversation with you. And as we reached 8 billion people on the planet last week or the week before, and 800 million children in 81 countries live in chronic food insecurity. So almost 1 billion of that 8 billion is children not getting enough food to eat. Uh, so you're right. I mean, when you said a few moments ago that in some ways we're not making much progress, but in, in fact, we're, we're a Band-Aid uh, and we're, you know, the former uh, head of the UNHCR said, you know, humanitarian, there, there are no humanitarian solutions to humanitarian problems. Um, and, and nobody should look to our sector to solve the problems that we're trying to work on. It's the solutions are political. Um, and so that piece that we're trying to do in, in shifting our business model to being a louder voice that, with children on advocacy is critical uh, because we won't don't look to save the children and other NGOs to solve all the world's problems. We're just trying to save lives and keep, you know, keep communities, you know, with basic needs. Um, at the end of the day, the solutions we need are political. And so I think there's that's the nuance as well in this conversation. It's such an interesting point. It, you know, we, we prop up NGOs as, as these amazing organizations, which they are. But the reality is, if many of these governments just got their act together, um, these NGOs well, wouldn't have to exist. <laughs> That, that includes our own governments in, rich, in the rich Absolutely. world as well, right? I mean, because Absolutely. we're benefiting from the structural inequality that we see in the world. Um, and, you know, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a member of um, the um, Canadian Africa Growth Coalition, which is a group that came together to try to see, you know, Canada doesn't even have a real coherent approach to the African continent, which is where so many children are really struggling right now. Um, it's about a transaction. It's, it's, a, it's a flow of aid, right? And Canada has been an excellent, great donor, and we work with Global Affairs Canada in so many ways. Um, but I think there are opportunities. I mean, the Prime Minister this week is in Asia, visiting a lot of Asian countries, building relationships and forging economic and trade partnerships there. And I think that there's opportunities in some of the world's you know, poorest places as well, some of the countries that are really struggling, to think about what do we do beyond aid? Because in our sector, we talk about forgotten crises all the time. They're forgotten because people are, you know, tired of giving to the same place. I've just come from a visit in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is called a forgotten crisis. It's forgotten by us. We have the privilege of forgetting it, but people on the ground there haven't forgotten it. Um, and I think every time we look at our phones, which use Colton, which is mined from that one region in Eastern DRC where I was, we should think about the people that are suffering because the instability that, that is perpetuated in that part of the world, which there's no real interest in fixing because we, you know, we rely on the minerals. So it's a, it's a complicated thing, right? It's a, it's a complicated system and we're just one part of it. And yes, there are challenges in our sector, but um, I think that fixing them is going to involve uh, building coalitions and a new ecosystem that goes beyond our work. And that, in a way, that's what the Pledge for Change is about, right? It's not trying to work local actors into the work that we do. It's about seeing them within a new ecosystem that is actually able to respond to the immense needs that are going on that right now. To that point, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, you've got 800 million children that are, that are suffering in, in, in some way, shape or form. And in addition to that, you, you've spoken historically about this Know, trifecta of, of problems that are making it particularly challenging and, and compounding uh, the problem. And so when you think about the state of the world for children right now, where, where do you see Save the Children Canada playing the most critical role? What, 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 what motivates you to, to be getting out of bed each morning? To, like, which problems are you most passionate about tackling? 
you know, it's very hard for me to do what I've just done, which is be in the Congo and look into the eyes of children who are frightened. Any parent, anybody who has children around them has lived with them through COVID, has looked into the eyes of their kids or their nephews or nieces and, and seen the fear there of the unknown. And um, having spent a week visiting our work in, in the DR Congo and, and looking into scared children's eyes, that's what drives me. You can't do that and not be affected. Um, and I think that here in Canada, you know, if I if, if we've had a drought for a few months and my garden needs a bit of water, I can turn on the hose and water it. Um, you know, if I'm really struggling in, in, in some other way, my kid is sick, I can take them to the hospital. Um, in places in the world that I visit, it's not an option to turn on a hose and there's been sick, you know, year on year droughts and, and, and real serious challenges related to climate change. And so, you know, it's telling stories about those places and, 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 and realizing that we, we st there's a lot more we can do to support, whether that's just raising our voice and pushing our governments to do more in alliance with, with other countries, um, or whether that's, you know, donating to organizations like Save the Children, whether that's just speaking out. Um, I think that's what drives me because, um, you, you know, the superlatives are, are one thing, right? Most children ever, more than ever in, in decades, you know, 800 million, those you can't grab onto that, but it's thinking about, okay, that one child that I met in the hospital the other week in Goma, who'd been there for the third time, because even when they're, you know, we're able to go home with their mom, mom doesn't have any food to give them then either. So they're going to be back in the hospital again, or that one community leader who's my age, who the whole array of issues that he told me about that's impacting his community. And I then said, is this, and he's living in an ID, in an in, internally displaced person's camp. And I said, is, is this the first time you've had to flee with your community um, so that your boys weren't sucked into be, you know, carrying guns in the militia and your girls didn't have to risk a sexual assault? And he said, no, this is the fourth time in my life that I've had to move to uh, a refugee camp in my own country. And so that's what drives me. I mean, there's, uh, we, we are immensely privileged here in Canada. And yes, we've experienced many challenges these past few years. Um, uh, but I think that there's ways that we can work in solidarity better with communities all over the world and and just think about that scared little kid who hasn't eaten in three days. So, and you know, I don't, I, I, it's not all gloom and doom, Erin, because there's a lot of hope out there too among kids right now. Kids are so hopeful. And the other thing I, uh, in speaking to children, they, it gives me hope because they're hopeful for the future. They have to be, you know, it's the only future they have. And we, you know, we should work with them to make sure that it's a successful one. We spoke recently as part of our project called Generation Hope to 54,000 kids um, in 15 different countries, including 1,200 in Canada. And 88% of them said that they had seen or experienced inequality or the impacts of climate change. But almost that many said they're hopeful that we'll find a solution. So that's got to drive us as well, whether you're a parent or not. You know, I think it's it behooves us as this generation that's contributed in so many ways to the climate change and, and inequality that we're seeing now to acknowledge it and work in some way to fix it. What you're talking about right now takes me back to a conversation that I had with Jane Goodall on this same podcast. And she was talking about why she remains hopeful. And I mean, she's written numerous books about hope. And she speaks about the, the indomitable human spirit and, and her belief in, in the next generation who are hopeful and who, who just don't give up and who at, at a significantly younger age are finding ways to be useful and are finding ways to contribute. And she says that, you know, at, at the age of 88, after seeing two massive global crises and, and wars uh, that, that it's youth that, that give her hope. And it's, it's reassuring and encouraging to hear you saying uh, something very similar. Well, but, the COP27 is on right now, right? And I think of like the Greta Thunbergs and the Vanessa Nakates and all the other children I see that are on the front lines. And the least we owe it to them is to treat this climate disaster with a bit more urgency like they are. Um, and I think that they give me hope, but they also actually raise the bar for, for the rest of us. They do. Yeah, they absolutely do. So Save the Children was founded approximately 100 years ago in the UK. And I'm wondering from, from your understanding of the organization, what have been some of the largest achievements to date? 
Well, I mean, yes. So the Eglantine Jeb founded Save the Children after the First World War in response to the needs of children in, you know, the defeated territories in Austria, Hungary, Austria-Hungarian uh, territory. And, um, you know, it, it's most of us weren't alive then, um, but I'm sure in, in many ways the issues that children were facing then haven't really changed that much. And so I think our biggest accomplishment in, uh, in the 103 years that Save the Children has been around has been being uh, an ally to children, being the voice for children when they didn't have a voice, working in partnership with children to realize their rights in all the countries where we work, and that includes here in Canada. Um, and we've, you know, that's changed as the world has changed. And I think, you know, right now, um, you know, whether that's responding to children after a humanitarian crisis like the tsunami, you know, in, in, in 2005, I think it was, whether that's responding to um, children this year in Pakistan after flooding, we try to put ourselves in the shoes of children. And if I think about being a three-year-old in Pakistan, where a third of the country was in some way affected by the flooding this year, and just think about the perspective of being three feet tall, what does that mean when things when when there's a flood, right? You know, you, you can't even you need you need an adult just to pick you up to save you. Um, so thinking, you know, that's you know that's what we try to do is think as children and think about the things that impact children. And that's so important, and it's changing too, and it changes contextually. Um, but I'm proud to work for an organization that that centers children and children's rights issues, and and and, and we as often as we can try to include um, working with children and youth in everything we do and try to incorporate their perspectives into our work. And that's so critical and increasingly so. Um, and we were talking about, you know, the climate change team, you know, Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakate and other children like that. I mean, they're, they're really setting an example. And there's kids everywhere that I go um, that I speak to who are so bold and have so many great ideas. And I, what I really value about Save the Children is that we listen to them and we incorporate that into our work and we're always looking for more ways to do that and that's something novel I think sadly um, something novel in, in this work um, but so important because you know nobody knows what a child needs like a child yeah actually to that point as well uh, we, we've had you know quite often I'll have the opportunity to, to do a presentation at a school or an opportunity to do that same presentation at say a boardroom or a presentation at a university. And I always learn the most from presenting to, you know, a grade six, grade seven classroom. And, and they just, the questions that they ask, it's like, that's actually a really good question. And they're so comfortable proposing their ideas or asking their questions. And it's so refreshing. So to hear you say that uh, you guys create space for, for children's ideas is, uh, is reassuring as well. I'm wondering what can our audience do right now to support uh, Save the Children Canada and its and its mission? Well, I mean, the one thing I always say is please donate to our works. So you can go to savethechildren.ca and make a donation and learn more about the work that we're doing in all the areas that we work in. Um, but also, I think as I've tried, I sort of intimated throughout this this discussion. You know, we need Canadians also to advocate for children's rights. We need Canadians to, you know, and, and anybody who's watching this to get out there and pressure their governments, pressure decision makers in their communities to take these issues seriously, to, to put children's rights front and center. Because if anything has showed us, the, the pandemic has showed us that we are all in this world together and that one crisis affects all of us. And, you know, the pandemic has been an emergency and we rallied around in so many positive ways to respond. Climate change is this emergency that you don't even, I could say looming, but it's more than looming, it's here. So many of us are already seeing the impacts of it and I just don't think we're treating it in, in the way we should be, treating it as a critical emergency. And, uh, you know, I think that we need to, you know, it's, yes, please donate and support the work of, of organizations like ours, but I think the pressure on governments to really focus on um, these issues and to think about partnership and solidarity with countries that are suffering, because, you know, the biggest emitters, which we know, of uh, fossil fuels, 
are those that are experiencing the impacts least. And the countries that have, you know, and the people that have contributed least to climate change are experiencing the impacts now. Those children are struggling to get enough to eat. Their communities are on the move because they are not able to make their crops grow any longer. And this is something that we should be supporting and, and helping. I'm very much with you. Danny, I, I can't think of a better place to wrap up our conversation for today. And I, you know, I've learned so much from you and I'm sure everyone listening to this will agree. Thanks for taking the time to share your insights with us about how we can all lead more impactful lives. And just before we wrap up, yeah, is there anything that you'd like our listeners to check out? Um, any links or current campaigns that we can include? Yeah, well, today I've talked about Save the Children Canada, so savethechildren.ca, where a lot of the campaigns I've mentioned are there. Um, the Generation Hope campaign is the campaign that I also mentioned, where we've uh, accessed the voices of 54,000 kids globally and got their views on climate change and on the world that we're in right now. And there's a lot of interesting content about that on our website also. And of course, I mentioned Pledge for Change 2030, which is another site you can check out if you're interested in joining the Pledge for Change campaign or learning more about our work. Um, uh, but other than that, Aaron, I think that's great. And thank you so much for this opportunity. It was a great conversation. Hey, greatest pleasure. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. And Danny, I, I got to say, it, it's it's you approach things really beautifully and with a lot of humility. And I, I look forward to continuing the conversation, truly. Thank you so much. Me too. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing and feel free to leave a review or comment to let us know your favorite moment or recommend a guest for a future episode. And thanks to RBC for sponsoring this episode. Impact in the 21st Century is a podcast by Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education and refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you like the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thank you.